The information shared on the Allo podcast is not intended as medical advice. Your medical care decisions should be made in consultation with your physician who is familiar with your specific case. Welcome to the Aloe Podcast from the Aloe Hope Foundation. I'm Molly Sherwood. And I'm Bethany Weathersby. And we have an eye-opening episode today. We do. We want to share more patient experiences. Yeah, so Bethany, you interviewed Monique Kinney, and she's a member of the foundation. She's an aloe-immunized mom, and we wanted to get her story. She has had a long history in supporting our community. She started a Facebook group that later kind of blossomed into what you two changed to the Aloe Hope Foundation support group. Um, So we just really, really love her dedication to our whole community. And she just seemed like the perfect choice for someone else to interview. Yeah, Monique is amazing. She was always so supportive when I was going through my pregnancies. And she has been such a great encouragement to other patients as well. She was really instrumental in the development of the foundation, actually, and the start of this podcast. And we even have an upcoming episode, actually, the next episode after this, where we talked with her and her husband about his experience with immunization and HDFN. I love that idea. That's going to be so cool to hear that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't wait. That's a really good one. I think that her, Monique's emotional vulnerability and just that journey she went through and her openness about her whole situation is going to really help a lot of patients and doctors. Okay, I'm sold. I want to listen now. All right. <laughs> Let's okay, go. Sounds good. All right, Molly, could you cut in and explain a few things if they get a little confusing during this episode? Who, me? I hate explaining things. No way. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I absolutely will. <laughs> Give us a little touch of the nerdy side. Okay, happy to. As All always. right. Monique, I'm super excited to hear your story from the patient perspective. So when did you find out about your antibodies? I found out about my antibodies in 2013. My first two kids are 15 months apart. And when my daughter was five months old, I got my positive pregnancy test and went into the OB for the standard prenatal blood work and was a little surprised to see these antibodies pop up on my chart. I have one of those online patient portals. So I saw my results before I even saw the midwife for the first time. Wow. You, you're so proactive. <laughs> I didn't even know like what they were testing me for or anything when I had those blood tests. But so you did not have any red cell antibodies during your first pregnancy. Right. And we figure that what happened was our blood must have mixed during my first delivery. And then that's what caused my sensitization. Right. And you had never had a blood transfusion? Right. I never had a blood transfusion. I did have one miscarriage before my first child, but nothing had ever shown up before. So which antibodies do you have? I have anti-E antibodies with the big E. And then my husband is homozygous for the big E antigen. Okay, let's talk about homozygous. So when she says this, she means that her husband carried two copies of the 
antigen in question, which for her was anti-E. So we know that if her husband is homozygous for big E, that means he has two copies of the big E gene. And that means all of their babies are going to inherit the big E from him. So since Monique has anti-E antibodies, we now know that all of her babies that she has with him are going to inherit the big E and be potentially affected by her antibodies. So all of our kids inherit one copy of the big E from him and one copy of the little E from me. So that means all of our babies are at risk from my antibodies. When you found out about anti-E antibodies, did you know what that was? Had you ever heard of that? No, I hadn't heard of it, actually. But it's kind of funny because I spent my entire high school career like interested in medicine. I started volunteering at a health resource library when I was 13 in Lakeland Hospital. And I would spend hours just reading the medical books and the articles there. They had a patient and family side that you could go into, but we also had a back room just for doctors with all the medical journals in it. So I had actually been interested in RH disease and blood incompatibility in pregnancy. So I knew all about anti-D antibodies, but I had never heard of anti-E antibodies. Wow, that's that's so interesting that you're already curious about it before you had the antibodies. And even after after spending all that time kind of learning about it, you still had never heard of anti-E. Yep. My husband and I actually, when we got engaged, I was like, what's your blood type? And he's like, <laughs> oh, positive. He knew because he was a blood donor. And then we actually laughed and we're like, well, we won't have to worry about that disease because we're both O positive. Right. And God also had a sense of humor <laughs> and was like, watch this. So you saw online that you had these antibodies. And then what was that first appointment like after you got those test results? So my first appointment probably looked a little different from other people's because I knew about my antibodies ahead of time. So I had a week and a half to research them. And I had also just recently graduated from university where I got my degree in biology and I went pre-med. I had taken the MCATs and everything. So I was very familiar with medical journals and research. So I went in with articles printed off and notes. And I said, hey, I need to have my husband tested and I want a referral to a maternal fetal medicine specialist. My midwife, she was like, I've never seen this be a problem in my 20 years here, but I'm happy to do those things for you. Monique's midwife did eventually refer her to an MFM, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, and they ordered tests for Monique's husband. That is how they found out that he was homozygous for the big E, meaning all of their children were going to inherit the big E antigen. I don't really remember feeling like disappointed. I just remember feeling like, Okay, now we know we can move on to the next step. Because I feel like in a way it would have been harder if he would have come back heterozygous and I never would have known for either pregnancy, like what to expect. Is my baby negative? Is my baby positive? What was your titer? My titer was one less than one when I was first diagnosed. So that entire pregnancy with my son 
My levels did not rise at all. I did see the MFM. He gave me a care plan. I brought the same articles into him and I just loved my MFM because I brought in articles and it was great because he talked to me like I knew what was going on. He talked to me like a peer. He didn't dumb things down. He didn't have that condescending tone or attitude like sometimes women say that they experience. And he actually like what really sealed the deal for me. He brought me articles to read at my next appointment. And so I brought him new ones. He's like, great. I brought you some new ones, too. And my folder of articles grew. So he really did an awesome job. So so after your son was born and he was in the clear, did you think, oh, maybe we shouldn't have any more? Were you hesitant to kind of grow your family after that? Or were you like, no, I know what to do now? So we were just letting God decide our family size. And when we'd get pregnant, none of my children were planned. They were all just like, surprise. So (laughs) when he was eight months old, I got my next positive pregnancy test. And we ended up having a little girl. So did you feel more confident going into this pregnancy? I I think so. Like, I would say that it was more confident and a little more easygoing. I went in right away for my prenatal blood work, like, because I knew, okay, we need to get these levels. We need to start tracking these things again. So her pregnancy was quite a bit different than his, actually. We still had the same MFMs. We still had regular scans. And then all of a sudden, her numbers started going up. And our MOMs went from like 1.09 to 1.3, 1.45, and they just kept getting a little higher and higher. It was kind of scary. So was that kind of correlating with your titers going up as well? Or was your titer still pretty steady and low? My titer stayed the same. My titer, well, it went up a bit. It went from one less than one to one less than two. So it's not a huge change, just a tiny bit higher. I want to explain quickly that Monique's kids are a little older now. And at the time that she was going through this with her children, the way that titers were reported, you would always report the number one and then a colon and then the actual titer number. So like one to 16, one to 32. And she says one less than one. What she really means and what we say now is just the second number, which is the actual titer. So her titer is less than one at that time. And when I started getting these high readings, the doctors didn't think that it could be from the antibodies, but they weren't sure because everybody had seen articles that said titers are not an accurate indicator of anemia in a subsequent pregnancy. So... They were like, we're definitely going to keep scanning just to be safe. They bumped my scans up to every other day. Do you remember what trimester you were in? Yeah, like late second trimester, early third trimester. I am one of those people who likes to be prepared. So I went into each appointment, each MCA scan, knowing what I called the bad number. So the MCA scan, as we previously talked about, is the scan of the baby's middle cerebral artery. And the blood flow speed in that artery will tell you whether the baby is showing signs of anemia. And so if the speed of that flow is 
1.5 times the median speed for a baby at that age, that's what we call the multiples of the median. So if that flow is 1.5 multiples of the median or higher, that's what we call the bad number. That's what Monique is talking about. I actually knew because I was watching the ultrasound screen and I knew when that number came up and I'm like, it's too high. It's too high. And like I started to tear up and the ultrasound tech like was looking at me because she knew I knew what it meant. And she's like, it's okay, It's okay, Just just hang in there. And then she went to go get the doctor and the doctor rescanned. And he was like, "Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Monique's MFM referred her to specialists at the University of Michigan for a possible IUT, which we really value whenever we see that happen, because we realize it's pretty impossible to expect every MFM to be an expert in conducting IUTs, but knowing when to refer is just as valuable in situations like this. I left that appointment like I was I was nervous. I was upset, but I did feel like we have a game plan. But I was also really emotional. I remember walking through the hallway and just thinking, just keep it together till you get to the car. Just get to the car first. And once I hit that car and that door shut, like the waterworks started flowing and everything. And then after like a minute or two, I'm like, okay, we got to get going now. So I'm like, turn it off and next step. So I immediately called my parents before I even called my husband. I called my parents and I'm like, I need you guys to drive up here. You have to watch my kids. So my parents made the four hour drive up to watch my kids. But that way, like I had to call them first because it was late afternoon. They needed the time to pack and get up here before dark and everything because I had to leave early in the morning. Then I called my husband (laughs) And that was an interesting conversation because he worked in a factory at that time. So it was noisy and loud. And I don't think he quite understood. Like, I don't think he could hear everything I was saying. When he got home from work a couple hours later, I like told him everything and it clicked and he got it. Yeah, it was really stressful and hard just not knowing, is your baby going to be okay? When you got in the car and you were crying and just super fearful and anxious, what were you most afraid of? The giant needle. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I, I felt I was far enough along. I think I was about 30 weeks. So I was far enough along. I knew she could be delivered and she'd be okay in a NICU. Right. But mm-hmm. just the uh, the unknown and I don't like needles. I was like most nervous about the fact that it's a surgical procedure and I did not want it to turn into an okay we're doing a c-section right now I think that's what I was the most afraid of it is a big needle it is a giant needle (laughs) so I don't blame you so the next day you went to the MFM and with and did your husband come with you no actually um okay And I don't remember why, because his work is always so good about like letting him take off anytime he wants to, like he doesn't need to give advance notice. So I don't remember why he didn't come with me, but my dad drove me actually. Oh, that's nice. So that was nice because it was about a four and a half hour 
car ride. It was nice in a way to spend some quality time with my dad talking and stuff. And like I did explain the disease and what was going on to him, but also just to catch up and talk because like my dad and I would always do things together, like play video games, stuff like that. So we just had that time together. And then when I got to U of M, the appointment went well, like it went smoothly and the doctor scanned my baby and her MOM had went down and it was a 1.3. So that was great. So one reason we love sharing patient stories is because we can learn so much from each person's unique situation. And something that we discussed amongst ourselves at length was how to talk about receiving MCA scans when your antibody titers are below the critical level like they were in Monique's situation. And so for Monique, she had a previously affected pregnancy and she felt safer having MCA scans. And although this is one approach to management, it's important to keep in mind that MCA scans do have a false positive rate of about 12%. And we can link to that original article in the show notes that explains what that means. But Essentially, a false positive in this case means that the baby's MOMs are high, but the baby is not actually anemic. And so a false positive, of course, is much safer than a false negative, which would be where the baby is truly sick, but the MCA scan doesn't pick up on it. But it's still something that everyone should keep in mind when they're having MCA scans, especially if they're having them with a below critical titer, which is not traditionally and consistently recommended. So when Monique had a high MOM value, she made the right choice to travel to a more experienced MFM for another scan to confirm that high value. And in her case, the scan was lower, so she was able to avoid intervention that the baby didn't need by taking the extra step. And some moms or doctors do opt to have MCA scans with a below critical titer, and that is absolutely an individual decision, especially if it improves the mother's mental well-being by monitoring the baby in this way. But do be aware that it takes an experienced provider to perform an accurate MCA scan, and there is a chance of getting a false high. So always try to confirm high values with an experienced provider as soon as possible before you move on to receive treatment for the baby, especially in a case like Monique's where her titers are already low and unlikely to cause significant anemia in utero. So no further testing was done like that day, but she did give me instructions for after birth because I'm like, hey, I'm seeing this expert. I should ask all my questions about, you know, how this birth could look different than my other birth. So She actually said, don't wait for the baby's bilirubin results to come back. She's more than likely going to have bilirubin issues with anti-E and having some higher levels. So just get her under lights immediately after she's born. Don't wait for those test results to come back. And I'm like, okay, I can deal with this. I wrote it down in my notes. I'm like, I'll make sure that happens. And then also the town where I was living at has two different hospitals. And so my midwife is at one hospital, my MFM was at another hospital, and I could choose where to deliver. So I asked her, where should I deliver my baby? Um, This hospital does not have a NICU, but the other hospital does. What would be the best choice for my baby? And she recommended switching to the hospital with the NICU. So we did. That's such a great tip for moms listening. Ask a lot of questions. Ask until you understand. So often we are afraid to ask questions. 
We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to take up too much time. But for the sake of your baby's health, it's very important to ask a lot of questions. Did you go into that appointment with those questions ready to go? No, but while I was there, I'm like, okay, she's not in immediate danger right now. So what does the next step look like? And I asked her, I do remember asking, okay, so what if after I get back home, my levels go up again? She's like, you just come back here. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. And then I moved on to like, that's checked off. We know what's going to happen if it goes up again. And then now what's after that birth? So then I just started asking birth questions. So did the MOM go up after that, after you went back home? It did go higher, but it never hit that 1.5 again until right before delivery. So we spent several weeks just sitting like 1.45 or 1.4 or there was a 1.49. Like she would always go right back down. She spent weeks up there and I'm like, seriously, child, (laughs) this was frustrating But it also, I think, contributed to postpartum anxiety. I didn't know you could get postpartum anxiety during pregnancy because it's called postpartum anxiety. But after looking it up, it's really common for women with high-risk pregnancies to get anxiety during their pregnancies. And I mean, who wouldn't when they're worrying about their baby all the time? So I struggled with that. And I also kind of struggled to bond with her. Because I remember thinking, like, if something does go wrong, maybe it'll hurt less if I'm less attached. Right. Which, in retrospect, is kind of silly. But that's how I Mm -hmm. felt for a long time Yeah, when she was bouncing around with those high numbers. Like, I was trying to guard my heart a little bit. And then I remember breaking down one day and, like, all babies deserve to be loved no matter mm-hmm. how long they're here for. Right. And that was kind of a turning point for me. But that didn't happen until like 36, 37 weeks. I didn't set up the nursery until the last minute. You know, we are suddenly facing these high stress situations and we have to make these kind of sometimes life or death decisions for our children. And it can be so stressful but nobody prepares us for this. That's how I felt. It was like no one prepared me for this. There's no, I guess, guidebook for how to handle this type of pregnancy emotionally or mentally. And you feel kind of on your own. And and there's this doctor who's helping you, you know, with the physical side of things. But for me, at least, I felt like, who can help me with this part of it? I don't know what to do. So how did you handle the anxiety? Were there any things that helped? Or did you not know that it was technically anxiety till after? I didn't know that it was anxiety until after she was born. And somebody's like, yeah, it's postpartum anxiety. I'm like, but it's been happening all through my pregnancy. And they're like, yeah, it happens during pregnancy, too. I'm like, well, then who named it this? Because that's not a very good name. I'm glad to see the names have been updated to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders because perinatal is around birth. So it's great that you 
it reminds people more that it could happen during birth, like during pregnancy and after birth. Because I was like, I'm going crazy. I don't know what's going on. But I was like, I felt like the only person in the world who felt this way. And like I was going crazy. And then when somebody said that and I had a name that I could look up and see how common this was, I'm like, okay, why aren't women talking about this more? Why aren't we helping each other and preparing each other for this? I think that's a pretty common feeling for women with alloimmunized pregnancies. And I I do wish there were more resources for women during pregnancy when you're kind of in the thick of it. I didn't have like coping tools or anything during pregnancy. It wasn't until after I had an anxiety attack when my baby was like a month old and I was sitting in the dentist's chair that anybody ever put a name to how I had been feeling. So I I had no coping tips, nothing. It was harder. I did eventually conquer my anxiety for a while. I decided to do the scariest thing that I could think of, which is probably not the best way to get over anxiety. But I actually did an obstacle course 5K where you have to climb up things 20 feet in the air and then jump down. (laughs) And it was terrifying. But I'm like, okay, I made it through this. I can get through anything. Yeah. And that was after the baby was born, right? Yeah. Uh, My husband was like carrying her around in his arms (laughs) and walking around the track, like outside. Yeah. So, okay. Tell me about her birth. She was right on the line, right before birth, you said. Yeah. So at 37 weeks, she had an MOM of 1.5 again. And my doctor was like, well, it's just because you're close to birth. If you want a C-section, we'll do a C-section and get her out now. If you want vaginal, though, our hospital policy is 39 weeks. And I had such severe allergies. I'm allergic to antibiotics, pain medicine. I'm like, what could you even give me for a C-section? And so I really felt like my life was in jeopardy if I were to agree to have a C-section. So I felt like I had to have the vaginal birth, but it meant two weeks of waiting when I, the last number I had on her was a 1.5 and it was the worst two weeks of the pregnancy because I spent it wondering if my baby was even going to be okay or healthy enough for delivery. And that was really hard. I'm hopeful that things have changed now. I know new guidance from ACOG and SMFM recommend women be delivered at 37 to 38 weeks. So that shouldn't be happening anymore, that experience that I went through. But that was really hard. When I went to have her, it was very different from my son's birth. When my son was born, he had about nine people in the room for him. And there was a team from the special care nursery there. My midwife was there, an OB was there, and a couple of medical students were there plus several labor and delivery nurses because everybody kind of wanted to see this oddity, this antibody birth. And now everybody got to check out the baby. They did the tests. And after about a half hour, he was cleared. He never left the room, but they're like, okay, we definitely don't need to take him to special care. Whereas in contrast, my daughter's birth, there were two people in the room, both nurses, when I pushed her out, And they didn't want to run the blood tests after birth. I asked and asked and asked. They did do a cord blood for 
blood type and Coombs test, but they refused to check her bilirubin and they refused to put her under Billy lights like the MFM at U of M suggested. So what was their reasoning for not doing those very basic tests? It's not our policy. Oh, and this was the bigger hospital with the NICU. Yes, the bigger hospital with the NICU would not run my daughter's bilirubin test at birth, and they would not put her under lights like the MFM said, because our policy is not to check bilirubin until 24 hours old. If she turns yellow, we'll check her sooner, he said, but we aren't going to check that. So they had her results. They knew she was Coombs positive but they still would not check her bilirubin. That hospital wasn't affiliated with U of M. They didn't have those records. So it was very stressful. I had all the articles. I had done a great job advocating for my son, but I just was not getting anywhere at this other hospital. I had switched to what was supposed to be the best hospital in town, and I feel like they ruined my birth. My first daughter was jaundice, so I knew what to look for. And in the middle of the night, I noticed the bridge of her nose turned yellow and she was starting to get it around the eyes. And I told the nurse and I'm like, no, I want to see that doctor. And I feel like that's the only reason he agreed to that test. And so I think he did it just to shut me up. Um, he ran the test. Her bilirubin came back high. She was about six hours old and her bilirubin was around a six, mm -hmm. which is higher than it should be. And right. I remember within half an hour, they were rushing in lights. Like they literally ran into the room with the bed of lights and they took her and they're like, she has to go under right now. And wow. I, in a way, it felt validating. Like this is what we were trying to tell you all along. She needed help and she was finally getting the help she needed. So the doctor was apologizing, like, I'm so sorry this happened. And then he's like, are there any other tests that you want run or that need to be run? And I'm like, well, since we're here, yeah, her neutrophils need checked and her platelets need checked because these are the other two side effects of HDFN. And that bilirubin needs checked. It took like my baby turning yellow and basically an accident and a preventable one for him to wake up and listen. And that is such a simple blood test that doctors can do to check on babies, Billy Rubin, and to prevent disaster, right? I mean, you can treat it so easily. Exactly. You know, listening to you tell your story, it occurs to me that women dealing with aloe pregnancies need to prepare for birth very differently than women with a more typical pregnancy. In general, women prep for their baby by nesting. But with an aloe pregnancy, not only is the mom nesting, but she has to educate herself and her partners, her doctors, and any number of other people that might be involved, while also taking care of herself and usually other children. Added on to all of this is that patients see so many different providers along the way, from MFM to OB to neonatologist, pediatrician. It can be really overwhelming and isolating. Did you ever feel completely overwhelmed by those transitions or did you ever feel kind of disconnected? Not so much because I 
wasn't relying on the doctors communicating with each other. I was relying on myself being that bridge. Okay. I have a large folder. It's full of articles. It had all of my baby's numbers and test results from pregnancy. I tracked everything so that I could be my baby's medical record and be her advocate. So what advice would you have for other women who haven't delivered yet, but that's in their future? So one of the biggest things is it's great if your titers are low, but just because your titers are low, don't expect it to be smooth sailing after birth. That's one of the things that I've seen a lot in the support group that I created is that women are told your titers are low, your baby will be fine. And then they end up having Billy Rubin struggles and being in the hospital for a week or two weeks to take care of that Billy Rubin. My advice for women would be to be aware of the tests that your baby needs at birth and keep up on that monitoring. Even if you've had low titers, if your baby comes back, Coombs positive, they need follow-up blood work for up to 12 weeks because they can develop delayed onset anemia later. They can develop high bilirubin later. Bilirubin, due to antibodies, tends to peak on days four to six. So your baby may be fine in the hospital, but might turn yellow when you're home. In that case, you need to take your baby back in. So now that you're finished having children, biologically at least, how do you feel about your antibodies? Because you do still have anti-E antibodies. Yeah. So my antibodies have been such a big part of my life for the last eight years. It's a little weird. Like, I feel like they'll always be there. I mean, biologically, the antibodies will wane over time. For most women, it's called antibody evanescence. But then when you are exposed to the antigen in the future, like through a blood transfusion, they'll jump right back up. It's That part's called antibody boostering. So I know that I'll always have my antibodies. I do carry a medical alert to prevent hemolytic transfusion reactions and make sure that I only get blood without the big E antigen. But overall, I actually feel like my antibodies were a blessing. I know for most women, it feels more like a curse. But I have been able to use my antibodies to help hundreds of women and their babies. So it's it's really been nice to be able to see that one person can make a difference. Well, I want to say thank you so much as a patient for all that you do. I know that during my pregnancies, you were such an encouragement to me and such a leader. I felt inspired by you to help others also with my story. And um So thank you for that. Thank you for your support and your encouragement and your leadership as a patient. And also thank you for all of your help as we try to advocate for these babies and to keep them safe. And thank you for this interview. It was so wonderful to hear your story. You're welcome. Wow. Monique is such an inspiring mom. Her struggle from the hospital bed with the nurses to get that treatment for her baby just really shows you what you, as an informed mom, can be capable of to protect your baby. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's just what we have to do sometimes. This is a complex, rare disease, and we have to advocate for 
ourselves and our babies, we have to be their voice. Yes. And I do hope with this podcast and even with Monique's experience as an example, we can help get this dynamic changed, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really want to thank Monique again for her contribution, not just for this interview, but to the podcast and to everything she does and continues to do to support women. Mm -hmm. Um, And that Facebook group that she was so instrumental in establishing is something that we you and I are in there every day talking to women going through this right now. So right. if you have questions or just need a little support to anyone who's listening, you know, we encourage you to reach out to other moms like us or join our group and just find a supportive space where you can share and map out the best path for you. It is such a great place, our support group on Facebook, because this disease can make you feel so isolated in your real life. So it's just amazing to have that support of this patient community who can understand what you're going through. And we really appreciate Monique's work on making that space so inviting and empowering and encouraging. Yes, she really did do that. And if you are a patient with red cell antibodies and would like to join our group, it's called Antibodies in Pregnancy and Aloe Hope Foundation Support Group, and it's on Facebook. So come find us. If you, your partner, or someone close to you has antibodies in their pregnancy, we are here for you. We have a great resource library on our website at allohopefoundation.org. That's A-L-L-O, hopefoundation.org. Thanks for listening. The Allo Podcast is a production of the Allo Hope Foundation. It was researched and written by Bethany Weathersby and me, Molly Sherwood. Thank you also to Monique Kinney for additional research and writing for this episode. It is produced and edited by CJ Hausch and Eric Hurst of Media Club. The Allo Podcast is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. Johnson.